0: Do tonight, I think we've talked on it uh, somewhat before, and that is uh, begin in Genesis and then go through, but not you know, verse by verse, way I'll do, but to cover it in such a way that uh, in fact, we started on a Sunday night at church, probably going a little slower than normally I intended, but uh, to start in Genesis and to go through so that maybe in two or three sessions we cover Genesis. And then after tonight, we'll go with the assumption that everybody has read the material and all. That way, we can just cover it and, and discuss those points that you want to discuss and bring out. Uh, and what I'll do is uh, bring out things from history and archaeology and the latest discoveries, everything that, would, that you, know, you might not already have to, to bear on it. But then we wouldn't be spending our time on, on the actual material, the material that we already know and understand and see and everything. And we'll start in Genesis and go all the way through. And then as we go, we'll also deal with the canon and point out why these particular books became part of the Jewish canon and how the books were put together over the years and we'll just bring all that in to, together and also I've along the way several times I'll try to have some outlines of some of the material dealing with the canon and things like that you know to, so you go back and look, at, look it over afterwards and use it now first I thought i'll give you a sampling of just some of the books that are available in this area this book here is called old testament history by smith and he taught this and still teaches it on a college level in fact he teaches at ozark bible college in cincinnati ohio and uh, this tells the story of the old testament using the bible plus secular history and the, like the history of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all those people that the Jews came in contact with, plus archaeological discoveries Now, There are other types now, and I'll be using a number of other books, but this is just one. This here is called The Ancient Records and the Structure of Genesis. And this is the, one of the best books I've read recently. In fact, I've, this is one that I've got some more ordered in. Uh, to to give out. This is a very good book and I'll, I'll explain to you a little more as we go on what some of the important things on here that you know have needed to come out for some time. Yeah, by um, P.J. P. Wiseman. Alright, now, in looking at the book to start with, in Genesis and also the other four books written by Moses, the first thing, if you're going to study it today and you keep up with what's going on and all, realize that uh the liberal scholars have for years rejected the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch and and they've got the reasons uh for for rejecting that but for years they've rejected it and have challenged it and, and we have uh, they have divided the uh book up into different sources called the j document and the e document and uh, things of this nature and the, they get these names from the j document for example is Is where the Old Testament first begins to use the word Jehovah for God and so they call that the J document and that it was a different author the E document uh, where Elohim or Elohim is used for God that that with that material that it's a separate source written by a separate individual and so this has had a lot of impact so much so that uh, A lot of skepticism was produced in the mind as a result of this uh, as a result of the documentary hypothesis and the liberal scholars the material before the fact in the first eleven chapters of Genesis for example they would put almost entirely in the myth category Uh, the flood in the myth category Uh, the entire Bible in the myth category Adam and Eve in the myth category uh, Cain and Abel all of this would be put in the myth category they would not have accepted it as history and then of course they would question where Moses got the information in the first place and they would present arguments as to saying that uh, Moses could have written this and they will take Genesis for example and show that that you can break it down into different parts and show uh, a different vocabulary and a different style in these various parts that is not the work of one Arthur okay now on the other hand and i'm going back in the past now even before the information that i'm going to present tonight which is the the various material that has come through archaeological discoveries christians and the conservatives the believers in the bible uh the conservative jew held on to the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch and also its inspiration because of the following factors despite Whatever the liberal scholar had said. First of all, you, if we believe in the deity of Jesus based on the evidence for his resurrection, the prophecies and its fulfillment, the eyewitnesses that we can comp- compare, and all the evidence is there, then we acknowledge also that Jesus endorsed these books as the work of Moses. And he quoted he quoted from uh, genesis when he talked about marriage he said in the beginning it was such and such and he goes back and he quotes from genesis 2 uh, jesus endorsed uh, abel when he talked about the destruction of jerusalem uh, he mentioned about the righteous blood that was shed from abel to zachariah the first and last person killed in the old testament uh, luke traces the genealogy of jesus all the way back to adam uh, jesus uh, makes mentions a mention of noah and the flood and other events in, exactly. that, in that area, too. Uh, and then uh, the other writers in the New Testament, such as the Apostle Paul, when Paul talks about the relationship of a man and his wife, and when he talks about women in the church, he goes back to Genesis in the very beginning. So, obviously, if this is in the myth category, then you have a real problem, because you've got Jesus and Paul and the others endorsing something as historical fact, That is in the myth category but so the christian for years and the conservative Jew said the evidence for jesus is there and therefore stands behind that which he endorsed okay point number one number two the prophets of the old testament that we can verify their inspiration such as isaiah who literally has a book that is full of prophecies that we can check out and verify well these prophets as they had a part in compiling the canon and bringing these books together all, without exception used the law of Moses, which was the first five books of the Bible, as their source that was their preaching material, that was like the New Testament is to us today and it was an accepted fact among them, it never had to be proven, you never find them trying to prove that the first five books of the Bible are inspired, it's assumed in other words, they didn't have to prove that to a Jew it was assumed, alright then the question becomes how did you ever get to the point where in the jewish mind that such reverence is attached to those first five books see the jews debated some of the other books the book of esther for example a song of solomon now, they debated some of these books as to whether or not they belonged in the canon there was no debate about the law of moses uh, the sadducees and the pharisees the one of the differences between them was that the Pharisees acknowledged all of the Old Testament that we have. The Sadducees only acknowledged the first five books, the Law of Moses. And that's why when Jesus dealt with the Sadducees, he always quoted from what they accepted, and that was the Law of Moses. Suffice it to say, you have to be able to answer, why did all the Jews so reverently, all through the centuries, reverence and respect that? And so as we go back through history, we get right back to the time of Moses and from that point on there is that respect all right there can be no explanation for that except that Moses had a part in giving them that material and they got it on his endorsement and that he definitely had been verified in their eyes as a spokesman for God and so they took that they took it uh, on the basis of Moses and so you can nail that down so we had this battle going on that really started in the last century, well I should say the 1700s, 18th century until then there had never been any question in this area but in the age of rationalization uh, when there as a result of certain studies that were going on in the, the Tibetan school in Germany and other places there was a lot of skepticism uh, concerning the Bible that was being propagated and then that is when the various theories began to arise concerning the books of the bible and that is when they began to go over them with a just a meticulous fine-tooth comb and the documentary hypothesis came forth concerning genesis and these other books all right this battle then has has waged down through the years now what has happened though is in recent years uh keep in mind archaeology as a full-blown science is only a little over 100 years old about 140 150 years old or so as a as a practiced science and so what happened is that archaeology began to uncover a whole lot of material that we could date back to this particular time and the interesting thing with it was that every time they come up with information that in any way tied into this it always tended to verify what was there for example that uh, the liberal theologian had said that uh, that the hiptypes and the jebusites and people like that were in the myth category well we come up with information and we find out that not only are they a great people in history but they live exactly where the Bible placed them and they have exactly the same customs and they have the same gods for example that concerning the Philistines we go back and read about Dacon and we've dug up in- images of Dacon and we've dug out images of Baal and so that when we dig up these people we not only have confirmed and verified what was here but uh, the customs the language the names that they have all fit the picture that we have here so the end result is that for the past century there has been a continuing increasing respect for the Old Testament based on these archaeological discoveries all right now concerning Genesis Genesis has again had some problems that that still even the conservative he he believed it for the reasons that we've stated and he was proving these things through archaeology but there were still problems and the big problem was that there is no question if you're a language scholar that when you sit down and you look at this and especially that uh, that if one is looking at the hebrew there rather than the english there is no question that you can present a tremendous argument for more than one author involved in Genesis it does not look to be the work of one individual and there definitely is different personalities that are involved in that material okay now what has happened though is that as this study continued as we have uh, dug up materials from that area we we've learned a lot more about the, the way they recorded history and the way they passed it on and the way they gave credit for authorship and all. And so now we have found some things about Genesis that have just opened up an entire new world. And so now the, the scholar in this area, and you're gonna, there's going to be more published on this in the, in the, in the near future. There's gonna, it's going to keep coming out. Now we can sit down and we're going to study and I can show that uh, Genesis definitely was written by different authors. It was written by eyewitnesses concerning the events as they happened. And that what Moses had was this material, plus we can only guess and how much more. And he simply put it together in the same way that Luke did. And so Mo- Moses is doing two things. He's writing as a historian who's gathering the materials that's been recorded. In other words, before the conservative scholar has battled with the liberals, and sometimes when conservative and liberals have battled, what I found out is that reason they couldn't settle anything because sometimes both of them were wrong and each of them were biased And, and the conservatives some of them couldn't have it any other way other than god had to dictate that to moses you know and they thought of the holy spirit as just dictating every single solitary word well no matter what you believe about inspiration if you're a liberal scholar or just an honest scholar you can discredit that you can show that the holy spirit did not dictate you know every single solitary word that the vocabulary and the personality and the scholarship of the individual, we can tell a difference in the writing of Luke and the writing of Mark. We can tell that Luke is a far more educated individual. We can tell a difference in the writing of Paul and the writing of Peter. We can tell a difference in the writing of Isaiah and the writing of Amos. There's no question that Isaiah uh, had an outstanding education and a tremendous vocabulary in comparison with somebody like Amos or Jonah or, or, or one of those individuals. And so it is that when we look at this we read in here for example that Moses was educated in all the ways of the Egyptians there's no question that when you read the part written by Moses that you are reading from somebody that has been educated in Egypt and is familiar with the language and the names and and things of this nature and so Moses then is on the one hand recording history that was not dictated to him all Moses would have needed is the same gift that Luke had and that is the gift of discernment and then Moses is putting this material together. And then as he puts it together, he's recording what he saw with his own his own eyes, and then the promises that God has made to him. Now, let's start off and look at some of these breaks here. I've got, no, this is not all of them, but this will be some, anyway. Turn over to Genesis, the first chapter. Let me start... Verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, then come on down in verse 4 of chapter 2. Notice what you have there. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Okay, so he tells you in verse 4. Now, we, it's easy for us to miss this little statement because, see, we put our chapter 2 up there where verse 20 is. All right, now remember, chapters and verses are arbitrarily chosen by us we've divided it up but the writer comes down to 2 and 4 and says this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created now let's note one principle and we'll look at it as we go through here in antiquity when they recorded material they did not do it like we do today we put the author generally at first and we give it a title at first in antiquity what we found out is they just started writing and the author, and some statement about the material that was written is the last thing you come to, right And they wrote on tablets. And so when we go back and read the histories of ancient people in this particular part part of the world over in the mid East, we read from tablets, and we find that these tablets were carried down, their history was, by families. And that whoever owned that particular family, that particular tablet, would sign it at the end and say this is the account or this is the tablet this is the record of and he's letting you know who that tablet belongs to and then each one would have his particular tablet and of course the family just passed this this history on down but notice what you have there the first statement here this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created first break that we noted all right now come on over to five and one look at five and verse one The next break this is the written account of adam's line okay what he's letting you know is this material that you've just read up to five one belonged to adam and adam has passed it down so you we have now covered two tablets all right now one thing that wiseman will point out is that the early hebrew related to what we're talking about perfectly that every time he saw that he recognized that this is a conclusion of that particular tablet and here's the person who owned the tablet so what you have now up to uh between 2 4 and 5 1 you've got an eyewitness account of what happened given to you by adam okay now come over to 6 and 9 look at verse 9 of chapter 6 this is the account of noah okay now this information before that between 5 1 and 6 9 he's telling you this is the tablet that belongs to noah this is noah's account so first you have adam's account and you've got two two tablets there then you've got noah's account and that state that in the end of that tablet would be verse nine all right now come on over to 10 1 notice the statement here this is the account of shem ham and Japheth. All right, between nine one, or six nine, I should say, and ten one, that is a tablet that belongs to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In other words, the the history that you're reading there of the flood. Shem, Ham, and Japheth were there, and they're letting like, know you have their eyewitness account of that material. Just as before that, you've got Noah's eyewitness account. And before that, you've got Adam's eyewitness account. And so so far, we've got four tablets. That, that Moses is putting together okay now come over to 1110 11, 1110 11, this is the account of Shem and so from uh, 10 1 to 1110 this particular tablet belonged to Shem and so what Moses is letting you know is that he has just copied this material now keep in mind the way we've learned all this first of all, scholars have always noted these statements in here these are the generations of such and such this is the account they've always noted that and they just didn't fully understand it they just knew it it was there but now as a result of all the discoveries in that area we found out that all of those tablets in that way and that when an ancient historian read history like that he understood it as something where you were reading the account in other words this part is dealing with that particular tablet okay now Come on over to, uh, let's see, 1127. 1127. This is the account of Terah. So he's letting you know that from uh, 1110 to 1127, that is a tablet that belonged to Terah, the father of Abraham. Okay, now, come on over to 2512.
1: Okay. 2512
0: after 11:10, 11, 11, 11 27. 11:27. 11, uh-huh. came after 11:10. And then look at 25:12 now. It said, "This is the account of Abram's son, Ishmael." And so that large body of material is the account of Ishmael. Notice also how much ma- material you're talking about there. That's the largest body of material yet. It also helps you to understand and appreciate the preeminence that the Arab puts on Ishmael, the son of Abram, and one of the prime recorders uh, in the the history itself. But this this body of material that we just read is an account of Ishmael. All right, now come over to 36.1. He said this is the account of esau so he lets you know that that body of material belonged to esau in other words that's from esau's tablets that's the historical record that that he had that he had in other words they were doing each one of those were doing the work of a historian in their particular family and keep in mind back then the only way history was kept in antiquity is through the family and so it was passed on. We find some tribes, uh, remember the story Roots on TV, and uh, that as he traced his information back, he found out that these African tribes carried it orally, and they passed it on, and the tribe actually had a family historian, and he memorized all those facts back, and every family had a historian that, uh, that they started from their youth, memorizing all those facts. Well, see, because of this, for years, liberal scholars gave a certain amount of credits to this early part of genesis but the reason they didn't give the full credits that conservatives did is because whereas conservatives had no problem with uh, perfect material because of their belief that the man was guided by the holy spirit but the liberal of course will not accept anything other than the natural mind that's recording so then the liberal had thought well there is a lot of truth here but you've got to keep in mind that antiquity in antiquity it was only passed on orally and so there has to have been some, something lost in transmission and so that some of the stories have been maybe magnified and made a little bit bigger than the actual are well then what we found out though is that this was recorded in written material and of course the discoveries we have made in writing in that area have just been fantastic and we realize now that that Moses actually has written documents that go all the way back and the interesting thing about writing now is we've proved that every single solitary time that you find man operating in a civilized situation he has writing and it's not some infinite thing it's writing that is sufficient for his particular situation and he goes all the way back okay now come over to 37 to 37 and 2 uh, notice this this is the account of Jacob and so what he's letting you note know there is that this particular tablet that we just had belonged to Jacob.
2: Okay, well obviously
3: when this book, when the Bible was divided like this they, that wasn't realized, right? They didn't understand it. They always break it right at, like for 36 I when we talk about the account of Esau it makes it look like what's following is the yeah. account. Right. So they also didn't realize that. What happened, that. happened
0: that for years, some, for the first thought of scholars on that is that he's talking about what's following instead of what went before. Yeah. But and then, and then they thought, well, they've only picked the more prominent individuals, you know, and that it only, and it's concerned about that. But then, when you read it, one thing they were always bothered about is that uh, when you look at the context, it obviously has to do with what went before, you know, that it it obviously had to do with that. And another thing to show that it was a historical record, another thing that always bothered them is there is no more impressive or important character than Abraham, yet you don't have. In other words, if you're doing just generations of important people, the question is, why don't you find one saying, these are the generations of Abraham, or this is the account of Abraham? Obviously, Abraham did not record a tablet, or at least Moses did not have access to that. His father Terah did. And so what Moses is doing, he is setting down and they and the Hebrews carry these tablets. In other words, keep in mind that they've gone into the Egyptian captivity, uh they still have these ta- as they go into there just like we just read of the tablet of jacob they still have their history that they're carrying with them so they carried their family history going all the way back to adam into egyptian captivity well then moses on the one hand he's been taught all the ways of the egyptians but then also he's been taught by his own mother well then the question is where did his mother get the information and see they have this information in fact you and i can only speculate today about how many other tablets in other words that it'd be hard to imagine that moses moses just sat down and used every single thing that he had access to at that time it's sort of like luke when he tells you that he's compiled this and talked to many eyewitnesses and all you know how much has luke deleted you and i can only guess when john talks about the miracles and he said that many other miracles did jesus do but these are written that you may believe he let you know that he sure didn't record it all and in the same vein here that uh, we can only speculate about how much more material well then what happened when they found this out well then obviously this explains the problem that the liberal has posed all along that you have you definitely do have different personalities and Moses is acting as a historian something it did for me when I studied that through the years and then began to read the other things that come in it helped to show to me the importance of, of reading when there's a difference from scholars on both sides, that even though the liberal may not have my view towards the inspiration of the Bible know, if a person believes something, there generally is some reason for for why they believe it. And you can learn from them. And and you, you may differ you may differ with their premise and their interpretation on various points, but you can actually learn by reading them. And I think in this area that the liberals actually performed a service. Because they, they cause the continual digging and studying and investigation and reevaluation because they constantly challenge. We also see something else. Although the, the conservatives are right in that Moses is there, is the one that puts it together and all, they were wrong in their belief that the Holy Spirit dictated and gave all this information to Moses, and they actually did some damage because that when they were saying this, that the Holy Spirit dictated, he gave this information to Moses, here's the liberal who's poured this information out, and he thought, well, why is the Holy Spirit using this personality and this vocabulary? And why does he, why does he all, all of a sudden start to use this personality and this vocabulary? And why does all of a sudden he start to spell a word this way when he's been spelling it that way? And so the observations he made were, were honest. and And I think that as we go through, we're going to find that although... I definitely would be classified in the conservative camp in the sense that I definitely believe in the inspiration of the Bible. But I think liberal scholars have brought out a lot of things that definitely help us to better understand the Bible. And I also think some of their unbelief has been caused by uh, by information that was not so that the conservative tried to force on them. And I think that goes on uh, somewhat today. Okay, anybody with any questions over what we've talked about so far or comments that you want to make? And the observation you made of Nancy is correct, but if this was being done today, the division the of these uh, of Genesis, we would put our chapters at those breaks and, and acknowledge that this is the, uh, the account of such and such. All right now, notice what we've learned. Though also, we've learned a couple of things. Number one, from secular sources outside the Bible, we document that that writing goes all the way back to thousands of years before Christ, far beyond when men used to believe. By the way, when the liberal scholar first posed his theory as to uh, uh, Moses and the documentary hypothesis, at, when he first initially presented that, at that time scholarship had only taken writing back to 1000 BC. So his first argument against Moses is that Moses lived, that Moses went too early, that there, there was no writing there, and that this stuff was all written later. And then what has happened is that we've gone all the way back so that now even the most liberal scholar will go back to 3500 to 4000 BC. And, and then, even then, they have to acknowledge that as long as we find man in a civilized situation, we find writing. We never find him without you know, any, any writing. We never find him, we talk about development of language, there's no question that language develops and all. But the interesting thing is, we never find man without language. In other words, to find this man who can just utter a few syllables, and then over a period of years, we eventually come to some language, we really don't find that. Well, we look at history, We find full-grown language when we find man, and we find full-grown writing in that he has the ability to express himself. All right, then, when we look at this, uh, through what we've studied so far, we also learn something interesting about Genesis, that although Moses is your author here and putting it all together, you're reading eyewitness material, that when you're reading the statements uh, concerning uh, Cain and Abel, that you're reading Adam's historical record. Of, of those events, and when you're reading the start of the flood and all, you're reading Noah's tablet, and then after the flood is over, you're reading the tablet of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his sons, and then you're reading the tablet of Shem, and then right on down the line, that you're reading the tablets of these individuals who were eyewitness of all this, and also had access to other materials that we don't even have access to at this present time. So tie that in with the fact that you also have the endorsement of jesus and the apostles and the prophets and the fact that all archaeology has brought forth information that has tended to verify and confirm this then you, you have reached a point now where you can look at genesis and say that there is absolutely no valid unbiased reason for not accepting this as historical fact There's just um, unless you're just going to say i just don't believe history period or i don't believe it unless i can see it because you simply cannot deal with history in a more concrete way than we can deal with this and keep in mind obviously the part of the problem is insurmountable we're talking about thousands of years in the past there's no no question that, that, that part of it is insurmountable but with the uncovering of all the materials and the knowledge of the language and the evidence is that we have it in such a way that we can deal with it and know that we're dealing with historical fact now as we go through Genesis here's what we're going to do we'll just get started on it tonight a little bit after the introduction there but as we go through it we, we want to first of all give every part of it the test of, of truth and some of these are number one truth is logical when we read these things are we dealing with something that is logical to, or possible to the human mind next truth is harmonious with itself and with anything else So the next question we'll be asking is are these facts harmonious with all the other facts in the bible and then second are they harmonious with all the facts of antiquity as we have them okay if we can prove that we're dealing with something that's logical that's not contrary to any fact that we know of and if we can show that it is harmonious with all the other facts in the bible and then we can show it is harmonious with all other uncovered facts at that time tie that in with the endorsements that we've mentioned and you literally have a case for truth in history that i don't know what you could do to make it any stronger in other words I, I think that you have you have done everything that you could possibly do from a historical perspective in dealing with truth and i don't know anything uh if you were going to study but about abraham lincoln i don't know anything you could do with in the investigation to make it any stronger than what we've got when we when we deal with the Bible
4: right,
0: we'll get to, we'll get to that when we uh, keep in mind I'll, I'll start with uh, dealing with it right now we think of this as five books right it's not we we have divided it up into five books Moses is responsible for Genesis Exodus Leviticus number and and Deuteronomy but Moses didn't think of it as five books and the early Jew didn't think of it you see that this is we have divided it up into five parts okay but Moses just gives us the material and and we'll get into that you know the statement that you mentioned there we'll get as we go further yeah uh but I'm saying that uh that we're just dealing we're getting started here with with the material that Moses himself was not privy to and then we'll come we'll, we'll go from there now this part we designate Genesis genesis is a word that means simply in fact you've got if you've got a little heading at the stop it means the beginnings so if you read there in the first in the beginning so that's how we name this section the beginnings based on that okay now exodus exodus is a word that means the departure so when we hit that part in the story of moses where we're going to deal with the departure of the israelite out of egypt then we just simply designate that exodus or the departure okay Leviticus comes from the Levitical priesthood. When we hit that part of Moses' writings that deal entirely with the Levitical priesthood and all the rules and regulations and the things dealing with the Levites, we just call it Leviticus. Numbers. When we come to that point where Moses and Joshua are concerned about numbering the Israelites to go to war. In other words, they would number a certain amount of people from all the twelve tribes they would not number the levites they were the priests of god they would not go to war they would not number any man under 20 years of age and so we we run into all kinds of numbers there as he gives us the exact amount from each tribe well then we broke that down and we just simply call that numbers all right deuteronomy comes from a word that simply means deut has the root meaning is second and it's the second stating of the law When we come to the latter part of Moses' writing, what he does, as he sums up, he goes back to the law that he's already given. And he states it again with commentary and explanation. And so, what you have in Deuteronomy, really, a lot of it is from a real long sermon that Moses preached. In other words, Moses knows that he's not going to the land of Canaan. And so, he preaches a sermon to these Israelites. And he goes back in their history and most of deuteronomy is a restatement with explanation of what you've already read and this and is a very key restatement and with, with some explanation that's not given earlier this sums up the work of moses now when we come to the end of it we'll find that moses will endorse joshua as the man and and will lay hands on joshua and that miracles will be wrought through joshua as god makes it clear to the people that he's picked joshua to relate to replace moses joshua will write the latter part of deuteronomy including the death of moses and then the book we refer to by his name and then we're going to see as we get on through how that that god constantly identified his prophets and that these people were the ones responsible for keeping this material together and passing it on down and they also had a part in why that these people reverenced and respected this material such now another thing we'll note in genesis and also these five books is that they contain prophecies about things that would take place in the next several generations about things that would take place hundreds of years down the line and then they point to the messiah and the kingdom that he's going to establish and as we go through the old testament we're going to see these promises fulfilled in minute detail in fact when we come to genesis 12 we're going to find three promises that God made to Abraham and the rest of the entire Bible will revolve around those three promises. The entire Bible, from that point on, will revolve around three promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis the 12th chapter and repeated to his son and to his son's son and, and right right on down the line. Okay, let's start at the very beginning. see uh, Barbara would you want to start with verse chapter one and uh, <coughs> list for tonight get on through the uh, through the first tablet and I'd like to study these in terms of the tablets themselves and let's go on through the third verse of the second chapter and so read until you have a comfortable break and then we'll start with Sandy going around
1: in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day.
4: Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a
3: second day.
5: And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day.
3: And God said, that, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve the signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern, govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night. And to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day.
2: And God said, "Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky." So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing moving, and every living and moving thing, which with the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed him and said, "Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth."
1: Then God said,
4: Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, to let him rule over the flesh of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, "Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed; it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food." And it was so. And God saw that all He had made, saw all He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day.
5: Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work and He had been that He had been doing. So on the seventh day He rested from all His work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating that He had done.
0: Okay, now first question we ask ourselves based on what we've read there, is it logical? When we look at the sequence and keep in mind that obviously the writer is not giving us a detailed scientific explanation of all that happened here he's just telling us what happened we, we notice when we start off that we have in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth this is a hebrew word that means to bring into existence out of nothing after that the word that's used is another hebrew word that means to form or make from things that are there and we don't run into this word that means bring into existence out of nothing until we get down to where man's created but we have it just simply forming from what from what is there. Now, another point in verse two, it says the earth in the beginning God created, brought into existence out of absolute nothing. The heavens and the earth. Notice the word heavens is used in the plural there. Okay, the Israelite thought of the heavens in and uh, it will always be in the plural. To him in three ways, and that is your first heaven where the the. We have the fowls that fly in the air, the second heaven, the stars, and the constellation, and the third heaven, the abode the of God. And so he thinks down here, and, and, and it says, or possibly became, okay? This is a Hebrew word that can be translated either was or became, depending on the context. And so we have a context here that really is uncertain. And scholars have debated this down through the centuries and some of the translations that you will pick up will have became there alright you could not I don't know how anybody would prove that that's wrong uh, the best you can say is either is a possibility okay now when it says the earth became formless and empty and darkness is upon the surface of the deep the spirit of God hovered over the waters then you have God said that there be light and there was light okay there, as a result of this word here that can be became some theologians believe the possibility of what is called the gap theory and what the gap theory states is that god created the physical universe and and, and the physical things and it was here for a period of time you can only speculate about how how long and then it became formless and empty then god started to remake it in the way that we have now now the people that believe that would believe that during this period of time that God was actually preparing this place for what was going to come after. And this they would say for example would be the time of the the dinosaurs and when you had when the 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 climate and everything was different on this earth and then it became formless and void that was the time of the death of all the dinosaurs and all of that vegetation and everything that would wind up making the oil and the coal and the diamonds and things of this nature. And then, after that, God begins to form it in the way that we have it now. And so when he said, let there be light, then really the the sun and the moon and everything was already created. It was all created at first, but now the cloud covering, the haze, and all that's involved, that God would bring it into existence so it could be seen, make it so that it could be seen. Uh, They would point out, for example, that when God, you read about him making the stars and the sun and the moon, and, and you have access to that right away that in reality that we are, we have stars out there that are so far away that it takes hundreds of light years for more light to even get to the earth and so that when that star was initially created that there would take that period of hundreds of light years for that light to travel here unless God was going to perform a miracle and it, it didn't need that but then the question is why you know on that so I'm saying that those who believe the gap theory believe that the sun and the moon the stars that this universe was was made by god and it existed for no one knows how long it became waste and void and then what you have there after that is the forming and the making of things in the way that they are now and and then of course the light becoming accessible to the earth and things like that now keep in mind a lot of people who who reject that for example, those that are involved with the uh, Creation Institute, they totally reject that, you know. They have a beginning point and then seven literal days, period, you know, and they consider all of that fudging and all. But keep in mind, the people even that believe that are, are putting it forth as a theory that's possible if this word here is became instead of was. I believe personally that there is a very real possibility. In other words, that the, when I read the evidence... When I consider the uh, uh, the proven case for antiquity, uh, in other words, there's, there's no question but that this universe has all the marks of antiquity that goes far beyond thousands of years. And it, it, it's just simply there. And, there, and, there's some, and, and the evidence that are, is given, in many ways, is comparable to rings on a tree. In other words, we know that a tree puts on a ring each year. And, uh, and and the rings vary in size according to the uh, the the amount of water it has. Well, in the same way, uh, the kind of uh, the evidence that is used in determining the years that things have been here is of the same nature. And uh, at least I've been convinced at this point that uh, that the evidence is indicative, to my mind, that the physical universe has been here more than just a few thousand years, and not in the form that we have it right now but that the material that that has composed this earth as we have it now, it's from material that's been around for a long time. Personally, I don't understand why this bothers anybody. Uh, One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. Time means nothing to God. He doesn't exist in time. And why that bothers anybody is beyond me. And the reason I'm concerned here is because I'm afraid sometime that in fighting the theory of organic evolution that in the process of fighting a wrong that I believe can be dealt with and discredited that we sometimes chase some of those people away from the truth by making the Bible say something that it does not say and I think we have to be careful there and we I mentioned that earlier on the liberal and conservative bit but I think we have to watch ourselves that uh, some of us who are not scientists and we take dogmatic stands sometimes on something that is not really a proven fact that can be looked at another way and then here's a fellow who has studied this in our scientific realm, and to him you're forcing something on him that is contrary to fact. So he comes to the Bible with two strikes against him because he thinks, hey, it's wrong here. It may be wrong somewhere else. And I think that we need to realize, need to point out to him that listen, that when they say that that it's only been here a few thousand years, that is a theory. There are also very good biblical scholars who have full respect for the Bible, that believe that it goes way beyond that and believe that this word here allows a possibility for something else and so at this point I wouldn't take a dogmatic stand either way I just say that there is extremely strong evidence and surely I know uh, some of the people that I that I have read a lot from and respected in fact I read from both sides I read from the uh, institution of, Institute of Creation Research and get their publication every month I also read from John Clayton uh, the Creation Research Group based in California totally rejects the gap theory. Uh, Clayton, although he accepts it as a theory, definitely leans in that direction. You know, and, and I respect him, not only from his scientific viewpoint, but from the fact he's very objective, you know, in, in his entire thinking.
1: So what you're saying is that Genesis does not demand that the earth spin here only a thousand years. No.
0: Or, or a, the Bible Or a though. few thousand years. No. Right.
1: And so if they prove that it's been around for longer than that, that doesn't disprove the mind. It doesn't do
0: anything. And
1: people that do that sometimes back themselves in a corner, and if it's proven that it's been here longer...
0: Right. It's just like, uh, the, uh, to give you an example, that religious people back in the Dark Ages uh, made this, kept you know, making the statement that the uh, Earth was the center of the solar system. And so here comes a scientist along, and he says, no, the sun is a center of the solar system. He was branded as a heretic. I mean, here's a scientist branded as a heretic for a scientific truth and uh, excommunicated when in reality he was right. But the truth is the Bible never taught what he was uh, actually teaching. And there have been several times over the uh, centuries where somebody, some religious person believed something. A good example is Bishop Usher. He's the one that, uh, that first put it down that the uh, Adam goes back to 4004 B.C.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well we now know, even conservative scholars know, that his reasoning was wrong, that his, he operated on the premise that, you, that in reading the chronology that you have a direct father-son with the exact amount of years and now we know that there's gaps in that chronology, that uh, the writer has given us the important characters And we know that there's gaps, and we can prove it. And and we only speculate as to how big the gap is, but there's no question there's gaps. We also know now that uh, the Jew tended to round off numbers, and he didn't think in as specific terms as we do. We knew he also operated by a different calendar than than what we do now. And so now uh, we know at least whatever we'll say that you can't say it's 4004 B.C., but because that was put forth as a fact, and, and thought of as something that's taught in the Bible, well then here comes uh, young people going to high school and college and studying uh, facts in, uh, in their ver- along with their various theories and all. And although a lot that is put forth in their scientific realm was in the realm of theory, a lot of it's fact. And And you can factually say that man has been here longer than 6,000 years. I mean the most conservative scholars that I'm reading from will put man here in a civilized form for about ten or so thousand years. And so that, uh, and that's man in a civilized form. So there again, the Bible got a black eye because of bad theology. And, and so this thing of the scientist and the, the uh, theologian and goes back and forth. In fact, if you notice the uh, Clayton's uh, tablet, his paper that he writes on, I think it's cute. He has the Bible here, and he's got the theologian and the scientist... Shooting at one another and calling one another bad names, and and then some little statement to the fact that uh, that you know the Bible and science is harmonious. That sometimes we have bad theology and sometimes we have bad science, uh, and the problem is there. But it, the problem is not between the Bible and science.
5: I think a lot of people try to to look at Genesis and try to get from it things that it wasn't written to tell us. It wasn't. It wasn't written to give us a scientific explanation. Of, of how the earth was created and, and a time frame. That's that wasn't its purpose at all. It was
0: the whole purpose, from what I can see, is God did it. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then God did this and God did that, and that's the the whole thing. And then to give man the information concerning his fall, uh, the why he's going to die, and and then this promise that God made to bring a Messiah and, and redeem man and carry that promise on down.
2: Well, this wasn't written for for twentieth century man, educated educated man in, in the United States. Right. This was written for all people everywhere, every time. And to, to somebody if Adam, he's wanting to know how this world came in about, this is written in language that he can understand, that anybody can understand. You know, it's not written in some scientific formula type thing. I mean, in a way it's a evidence in and of itself, some the, the language the way it's used I mean, you'll probably get to that through here. The way Talks about uh, the the real uh, pure or basic way. It talks about things like the greater light and the lesser light. The greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. And that's that's evidence that this goes way back, you know, into the, the talking about in the most basic facts, you know. Well, it's like things that we would make the statement that everything is
0: made up of atoms, and uh, they would have had no conception at all. They had, mm-hmm. in fact, when God told them to go out into conquer and subdue and everything like that everything was based on law and God knew that man had the intellectual capacity to conquer and subdue the earth and I believe even at the Tower of Babel we see some recognition on God's part of the intellectual capacity that he has given man that man is made in the image of God I believe that mankind as a whole I believe that we have the God given ability to understand every single solitary thing about the physical universe and I think if given enough time, we'll just learn more and more and more. But right now, you just think of what we know now in comparison to 100 years ago or 100 years before that. And how much more time is going to go on, I don't know. But I, know, I just believe that the evidence, to my mind, is indicative of the fact that man has the God-given intelligence to figure this place out. And, and he's done a pretty good job of doing it through the century, and he couldn't do it if it, if it wasn't for the laws and the way it's designed. All right, now...
3: I want to ask one more question back okay. to the gap theory you mentioned that that the dinosaurs and things because there's a lot of things that scientists have, have come up with that really just there there is no real place for them that i've ever seen you know i don't know do so not history well enough but i don't know where things fit in history but this the gap theory then could could be a way of explaining how those things could have existed that the scientists are coming up with that we really have no place to to place them
0: in our time that we know of. Yeah. Well, see it's interesting that even when we talk say for example about the the dinosaur there's no question the dinosaur was here that's a fact.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's no question that he lived at a time when the earth was a lot different right. than it is now there's no question about that. The dinosaur could not exist uh, in the way he did then in, in, in our system the way, the way it is now. There's no question that the earth at one time did not have a north and south pole in the sense that we think of it. There's no question, it's a matter of fact now, that the entire Earth at one time had a moderated climate. We're going to come when we study the flood. We'll begin to see some things there that affected a change. But I'm saying it's a matter of fact that we can say scientifically that at one time the entire Earth had a different, a moderated type climate. And how many other things that were different, you know, we can only speculate about. But there are certain things there that are in the realm of fact and those facts will fit, you know, in, into, that, into that theory. And so, I think when you've got a word like that, that can be translated either way. And when that you definitely have uh, evidence that, uh, that the Earth has an antiquity that goes far beyond thousands of years, I'm talking about the physical universe, then I think you have to allow that up. It, it, and I think that when you're talking with somebody that is studied in that realm, that it's good to point out and to deal with him from this standpoint and make it clear to him that that sometimes he's thinking well man if you're asking me to consider Christianity the first thing you're asking me to do is to to turn my back on fact and ex- yeah. accept something that I can't accept. In well, what what about
3: saying. like in terms of evolution the um, the fossils and things that they say are early man is it possible too that these could be from a, a different period of time like that? Okay
0: now first of all on the fossils it's when we get into now some things that the scientists say that are not so every fossil that we have can either be classified as ape or man and these so-called in-between creatures they every time they've come forth with them they come forth with a lot of publicity and a big bang and they're such and such and such but when all the evidence is finally gotten to we find we're dealing with an ape or a man and there's nothing in between and when you see the drawings Uh, They'll they'll show you a drawing here of an ape, and then you got man, and you got all these characters in between. And they get more man-like as they go in this direction. But those drawings are strictly out of their imagination. First of all, when you look at a a skeleton, how do you know how much hair? Uh, It's like when when somebody looks at at our our skeleton after we die, how will he know whether I was bald-headed or have hair? And all they're looking at is skeletons. So any time they put hair on anything, it's obvious, you know, that that's the, and yet they do it in a gradual way with less less on man. All right, now, some of the characters like uh, the the more they've studied, uh, Neanderthal man, you know, at one time they made a big thing on him as something sort of in between, but now you know we have studied that thing and, and one of the first things they began to note is that Neanderthal man had a cranial capacity. Uh, for his brain of two thousand cc on the average. Well the average person today has fifteen hundred cc capacity. So Neanderthal man was actually operating with a bigger physical brain than what the average man has today. He was a big so we now know that Neanderthal man was just a he was a big man. And then some of these people, like Heidelberg man, all it is is a skeleton of a man found in Heidelberg, Germany. That particular peaking man, skeleton of a man found in Peking, china and so all these can be put in distinct categories there's been several times where they've even tried to to push something uh as an in-between that turned out to be an absolute hoax in other words there's been willful dishonesty so piltdown man is a good example there was willful dishonesty involved in trying to come up with this in-between so those uh, what bothers me is here we get to the we talk about uh believers Sometimes making the Bible say more than it actually says, or say something it doesn't say. Those people sometimes are so biased in favor of organic evolution that they try to say things that they have no proof at all, other than their bias. And so, when a kid sees those pictures of the ape and man and those characters in between, he doesn't know that all of that's just an artist's drawing. That Java man, for example, consists of, say, a part of the skull, part of the jaw. And part of his hip or something, that's it. That's Java Man. And that most of those characters you see, that they really only have very few bones that are going by. They don't have a complete skeleton. In fact, to the best of my knowledge, unless there's something been found, you know, since I've read on this last, we do not have a complete skeleton of a dinosaur. That When, when you see that skeleton of a dinosaur in the museum, a whole lot of those bones are plastic. Uh, we get a certain percentage, and then we begin to speculate on what it looked like. And when you see the drawings of the dinosaurs and all, this is all we've got is parts of the skeleton. And that's strictly out of the imagination of that person.
5: I think one thing, too, with evolution, evolution of man that we've been, that we has been written about, most of those people in that field are from an atheist point of view. And they start from the concept that there is no God.
1: Right.
5: And so anything that they find or, or try to explain, they, they base it on that there is no god that's not a possible explanation Mm -hmm. so they don't even deal with it and so they have to come up with a theory that explains it in a way that that a god is not involved Mm -hmm. so you have a as you said a real biased interpretation and you know that it's hard to conceive of of such a biased interpretation and it's it's hard to,
0: to argue against because they don't accept your argument Right. I mean there there that's not that's not possible. are premise forces and that's why mm-hmm. that anytime you consider a miracle no matter what kind of evidence you present they're always looking for a logical explanation. And the same thing with prophecy or anything like that. And the reason is their premise is there is no god. If there is no god there can be no miracle. If there is no god there can be no prophecy. And so if there is no god obviously you can have no creation. And so their premises of such that they are forced to believe the other and and when they don't have sufficient evidence for it their attitude is well I know we can't prove it in fact I'll let me quote one of them but the only alternative is God and that's ridiculous and so therefore you know the evidence will eventually come and that's their attitude on it the, the evidence will eventually come in that realm but they operate on a completely different premise Well
1: they actually too go against scientific what we know from experience scientifically as far as
0: one kind giving birth to another kind. Okay, the uh, what we know, what in fact, what the Bible says, like when David said, "The fool has said in his heart there is no God," and he says, "The heavens declare the glory of God, and firm in His handiwork." And Paul said in Romans 1:20 that man is without excuse for not believing in God because the invisible God is declared by the things that are. That what they're saying is that man, using his God-given intelligence, knows that something doesn't come from nothing. That that is a mathematical philosophical impossibility and so that if and then on the other hand they say that you have matter being eternal and then life coming from matter well then we come along and point out that that uh, every effect has to have a cause greater than the effect itself if life has come from dead matter then you have an effect that's greater than the cause and in other words we don't go out and plant rocks in the ground It's not going to because if that rock produced life, it is producing an effect that's greater than the cause itself. So we say something doesn't come from nothing. Light begets light. For every effect, there has to be an adequate cause. And thus, uh, David even looked at himself and said, "I'm fearfully and wonderfully made." So that's why the David would just simply say, "The fool has said there's no creator," and Paul would say that there was no excuse, you know, for not not believing in the in the creator. It's interesting that in Genesis. It doesn't even start out trying to prove God. It just says, in the beginning, God, there never was an argument about God. All through the centuries, and this is interesting, when you study the history of man and all his idolatry and everything, you don't find any atheist. You know You do not find man without belief in God. Another thing, you do not find man without religion. Every single solitary time that we find man, we find him as a religious being who worships a creator. And he may represent that creator in many wrong, weird ways, but he worships a creator. He has this concept of sacrifice to appease the creator. Uh, he has this concept that he's in the condition he's in because he's displeased the creator. That that those basic concepts are in people all over the world all all through the centuries. You just simply don't do not find man without it. So
1: you're saying there's evidence that it goes back to right. Adam or whoever.
0: Right. right. You you never find man without religion without belief in a supreme being, without the the need and desire to worship. In other words, wherever we put man, he wants to worship. A high, he simply has a higher a drive within him to seek out a higher spiritual source and to worship that source, that that drive is, is within him. Okay, now, notice as he begins to form things, uh, everything is given to us in what we would call logical order. Uh, for example, we get the... Uh, we have the uh, earth and the water. Uh, we've got the the vegetation, the light from the sun that comes the very next day after the vegetation. Notice when it comes to living forms, the first thing is the water, and that's interesting that the evolutionists would go to the water as a source of life. They go to the water. It goes to the birds, and then right before man, the source is mammals, and then we have man. So it it gives life to us in actually the order that from simple to complexity that the evolutionist would actually put it all right then uh as he uh let's see another thing as we go through here and he forms things in the way that we have them now there is something again that's interesting from the christian standpoint and over and over he says there was evening and there was morning the first day there was evening and there was morning the second day he doesn't just say day one day two and i say that because that uh, some christians have postulated a day age a theory in Genesis. Personally, I just I don't believe that at all, because it's like to me the author has went out of his way to make it clear to you that he's talking about 24-hour periods. Because it doesn't even make sense to me that he would say the evening and the morning was the first day, and the evening and the morning was the second day, and he goes all the way through that. Well, then after he does that, and we come on down to chapter two, and it says in verse one, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he'd been doing, it. and on the seventh he rested from his work, and God blessed the seventh day, made it holy. Well, then we uh, come on to the point where the people of God are told to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, because on the Sabbath day that God had rested. And so we have six days set forth with for a morning and evening, or evening and morning, and then we come to this point where God sanctified or hallowed the Sabbath day and set it in that way.
1: I never did see any reasoning behind that anyway because if God could create the sun and the moon and the stars and all in 400 years, if he could create that, he could create it in sure. one day. You know? Yeah,
0: there's that was that's part of it. When it comes to uh, the forming of things, obviously God could use 24 hours or he could use one minute or he could use 400 mm-hmm. years. And, and And so the and question did, is did. not what can God do, but why does he state this? in that way now another thing to think of on that too going back in antiquity all through the years all through Jewish history up through the early years of the church and all it had never been understood in any way except for seven literal days six days and God rested on the Sabbath now the gap theory though you can go back centuries in the past to even go going back before Christ and you'll find Jews that, that recognize that. In other words, that's a Hebrew word. And some of the Jews believed it be, became. And some of them put was. And those that put became had the gap theory there. So I mean, that it's it's something that goes all the way through. But when it comes to this day-age thing, there was no day-age concept until the appearance of organic evolution and the conquering of so many minds with that. And then it seemed to be you know, an attempt to compromise in that realm. But I I really believe that the language is too specific here. There's no question that the word day sometimes refers to a period of time. But not when it is given a specific number, and not when you have statements like you know, evening and morning in the way that this is. Okay, now uh, uh, let's see. uh, In verse 2 of chapter 2, the seventh day god finished the work that he'd been doing so that on the seventh day he rested from all his work god blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work that he'd done over the years and this is a passage that in all honesty i've never felt 100 percent comfortable with you know i was brought up just like you have been you know always taught sunday in a special center. and by the way there's no reservation in my mind that that i believe without question that Jesus was raised on the first day of the week and the early church met on the first day of the week and partook of the supper to commemorate that and, all that. and you can document and go through the history and prove that the question is this thing of the seventh day Sabbath that uh, the statement there to my mind if I'm just honest with it and forget about my background and everything like that is that a long time before the law of Moses from the very first of creation the seventh day was set apart and hallowed and blessed and sanctified Later on, when Moses gave the Ten Commands, he would give this as a reason, going back to it. Because, why keep the Seventh-day Sabbath? Because in six days, God created heaven and earth, and he rested on the Sabbath day. And then, of course, that was true all the way down the line. Now, when you go to the encyclopedias, something that was interesting to me, and read about the Sabbath day in the early church, all of the encyclopedias are in agreement that during the lifetime of the apostles that all the apostles kept this they came out of Judaism, they kept the seventh day Sabbath and that the early church kept the seventh day Sabbath as a day of rest and then they would come together either late Saturday night and see Saturday night was the first of the week to them in Acts 20 where it says they came together on the first day of the week to break bread and Paul preached at midnight, they were coming together Saturday evening after the Sabbath day and then to break bread and the historical record Outside of the Bible shows that the, the Christians kept the Sabbath as a day of rest. Then late uh, in, the, in the evening after the Sabbath, really Saturday night, which was the first of the week, they broke bread. And then over a period of time, they started to do it early on the first day, you know, Sunday morning. But Sunday was never anything but just a common day to them. In fact, remember it says Paul preached at midnight. Then he went up, broke bread, and they ate. Then it said that Paul departed and went on his way. So Sunday was just simply a, a travel day for him. And then you can actually show where the changing of uh, Sunday, or from Saturday to Sunday as a Sabbath, took place over a period of several centuries. And then Constantine in the fourth century it was the one that officially said that Christians would keep you know, the first day. Now, where I'm at in my thinking at present is one day in seven is one day in seven Sabbath means rest and the whole question when I think of the New Testament as being a covenant of the spirit and not of the letter and I think of Christianity as being worldwide as opposed to the nation of Israel in one little locality there the question is is there any difference in, in what day of the seven and my personal feelings at present and I'm subject to you know still studying this matter but my personal feelings are that, that whether you kept Saturday or Sunday, I really don't think is the important thing. I do believe that one day and seven belongs to God. I mean, personally, I feel that that's my feeling that, that one day and seven belongs to God in a special sense, above all of the days. And whether that day be Saturday or Sunday, I have no problem at all with the seventh day of finished. If he wants to keep the seventh day Sabbath, uh, I could easily uh, you know that uh, keep the seventh day Sabbath also. Or I can keep Sunday, you know, as it. Uh, but it's uh, they, at least that's my feeling on it at the at the present time. Does that word rest mean the same
4: thing? It
0: means to cease from Seize. labor. See Sabbath. So why would
4: God need to rest?
0: Uh it's just cease from labor. Yeah, it doesn't mean rest in the sense that God needed to uh, lay out. It's just it means to you ceased one activity and you have quit that particular activity. Just like, well, for example, on the, when the Jew kept the Seventh-day Sabbath. He did things on the Sabbath, but he didn't go out and labor and work and make his livelihood or entertain himself. In other words, he he went to the place of worship and worshiped God. The, the, the Levite worked and offered the sacrifices and everything. He could actually do good. Remember when uh, Jesus went out of his way to heal on the Sabbath, and pointed out that God never intended that you understand that that you couldn't do good on the Sabbath day. And remember, He said that even if your ox falls in the ditch, you're gonna get him out. You know, on the Sabbath day, but it was a, it's rest in the sense that you have ceased from work, and then this activity is set aside in a in another sense. It belongs to God. But the Jew actually worked. He in the sense that he studied the scriptures, and he worshipped God. Uh, he could eat on the, on the Sabbath. He could do a good work or anything of that nature. But he did not use it to go out and to earn his living, or to do anything for personal gain, or to entertain himself. It was set apart uh, as a special day to remember the creation and his relationship to God.
2: What about uh, Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 14 and 15 about the weak and strong? And the weak, had uh, they had they would not eat meats, they would not drink, and they esteemed certain special days. And the strong would eat meats and they didn't have any problems with the, apparently the drink, uh, drinking whatever they were talking about then, and uh, they didn't. They looked on every day alike. And Paul didn't he say the strong, the the ones he referred to there as the strong, that they were the ones that were correct, you know. But that they should not, you know. Didn't he say that they were the ones that were correct in okay. their understanding? He said, "Don't look with contempt," and he told the others who believed there, he, you know, what in a matter. He said, don't, you know... In well, that first con- of all, don't judge your your brother and then don't... Okay, it's Romans 14, 3-5. through five, and He says,
0: One man esteemeth one day above another, another man esteemeth all day the same, let each man be persuaded in his own mind. All right, in that context, he's really not, doesn't have under consideration the Sabbath day or the first day as such. But the Jews and the Gentiles each had these various... Like we've got the 4th of July... Uh, Thanksgiving, Easter, and Christmas, and Halloween, and all these various things like this, and we got uh, Martin Luther King and George Washington, and all these particular days. The Jew had all kinds of different days that tied into his history, that he remembered those particular days. That uh, They had the days of Purim, the, it was Hanukkah, and any number of days. It went back to specific things. It that, uh, that went back, for example, when the Maccabees, Uh, won the victory to get the temple back and to cleanse the temple Uh, they went back into the uh, one the days of Purim going back into Judges where this guy was going to offer his own daughter you know based on a promise to God as a sacrifice so they had all these various days and they wanted to bind those on the Gentiles but the Gentiles had their days also and so from that context of Jews and Gentiles arguing about these various days Paul was saying that Fine, there is nothing wrong with you esteeming any one of these days. You know, you can go ahead and keep those particular days, there's nothing wrong, but don't bind it on anybody else. All right? The strong spiritual person there was the one that knew that that all of those days were arbitrary, that you could keep them or not keep them, that that really didn't mean anything. And that, that and as he went on to say in that chapter that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and self-control and things within the within the kingdom of God. And so The strong one realized that Christianity had nothing to do with arguing about eating particular meats or observing the particular days or anything like that, that it was a spiritual type thing. But what they were arguing about, though, in using that in the the vein you're speaking of, Steve, as if to throw away, say, the Sabbath, that would also do away with the first day. In other words, if you're going to use it in, in, in that sense. And when you go back and look at the initial people that received that letter, they never understood it as applying to the Sabbath or taking the Lord's Supper when they did that they understood it as applying to uh, the various days that the Jews and the Gentiles were arguing about and same with the meats what he really had under consideration there I don't believe Paul was endorsing what the Jew would call unclean meat I don't believe the Jew ate the unclean meats from uh, you know all that he never did give up his his dietary habit but what Paul was the unclean to them was meat that had been offered to to idols and what Paul is saying is that if you know that idol is nothing and it doesn't bother you to eat that meat, fine, go ahead and eat it, there's really nothing wrong with it, but for the person that is bothered in his conscience about the fact that meat's been offered to an idol and therefore it's something holy to, to that idol and all, then don't, don't come along and try to force that guy to defy his conscience and eat the meat, but the meat was not uh, something that was unclean under the law of Moses, it was actually meat that they offered to idols it was under
2: consideration. We went over that in that Romans class but I don't think we we studied it enough. We uh, probably more anything else just because we were running out of time in the class but as far as what it meant to them at that time I think if like you said like that's the way it was talking to them specifically about them cases but we just said you know what was the teaching to the the weak and what was the teaching to the strong and everything like that instead of you know understanding exactly what the situation was.
0: But see that that, uh, they have I think over the years past, some Christians have used that in arguing with the person that believes the Sabbath day. But then they would turn around and keep the first day themselves and bind it. In other words, they would tell their members, you know, you need to worship God and, and take the Lord's Supper and things like that. Well, the same if they're gonna the same argument throws out the seventh day Sabbath, throws out the first day too. Because it you know, it, but but in its context, he really doesn't have under consideration the first or the Sabbath. He's talking about all these things He's handling some problems, and the Jew and the Gentile, the early church had no problem with when they partook of the Lord's Supper and keeping the Sabbath. That was never an argument or a contention among them. The argument was all these various days that tied into Jewish history, and all these various days that tied into the the Gentile history, and that was their argument. And Paul was just simply saying that you know that you've got the right. Uh, for example, you would say that uh, to us as an American Christian, if you want to observe the Fourth of July, go ahead and do it. Uh, I believe although Jesus wasn't born on December 25th there's def- you definitely couldn't substantiate that historically if you want to set aside a particular day and observe the birth of Christ go ahead and do it if you want to observe Thanksgiving and remember something go ahead and do it but don't come along and bind it on somebody else don't tell them they have to observe that particular day also any other point in there that we need to
5: uh in chapter 2 verse 4 it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created uh it really doesn't give you any idea of who actually wrote it or or who kept it
0: no it just tells you you've got that tab- well it would have had to been always oh, the next one is adam and the only assumption i can make that this would have been adam's and he's just the difference is the uh, adam could offer the next part and he would have had to got this information from god all right and keep in mind that before adam's sin in the garden Adam was in direct communion all the time with God right. and I can't even uh in other words it would be hard for me to uh even imagine Adam in that direct communion with God not doing a lot of asking questions and God telling you know Adam and all so this at least to my mind was I believe Adam would be the logical choice as to who it belonged to and it came if, if
5: that's the way it came then it's- it's probably pretty. Funny.
0: And also, i tell you, where it's very important in, in the study of the thing we mentioned, it's obvious it's talking about what went back, you know, and right. not, not what's, right. what's right. headed on. Um,
5: it's interesting because uh, right after that, it, it goes through and starts giving you the story of Adam and Eve. And uh, I read an article a couple of years ago, I guess, that was. It was by, I'm sure, an atheist, and he had, he's talking about when he got on a plane and he was talking to this minister, sat next to him, and and uh, he found out what this man's line of work was, and he said, well, do you believe in creation? And and uh, the man said, well, which which one are you talking about? There's two. And actually, because you go through and there's actually two, right? It, it, you get the general creation, and then it goes back and, and uh, catches the story of Adam and Eve. A, a, again gives it to you again so and this this writer had made a big deal out that this preacher couldn't handle this and it just really frustrated him and um, it, it shows you that that we need to study it.
0: Sure does it, you know it's interesting to me Mark in reading some statements a lot of times by unbelievers that they have honest problems that some believers have never considered and, and what has happened sometimes is that some believers have brought, been brought up in a home where they were taught it and they believed it and everything like that and they developed their reasons for believing it off but their belief was so strong and so complete that it's sort of like having uh, somebody you really really trust that tells you something, you really don't feel obligated to go back and check them out on every point in other words I'm saying I'm not putting down this, this guy from that home, I can understand that but the problem there is that sometimes a person in that situation, when he's been challenged on some points, has realized that he hadn't even studied. That this guy, and this guy saying, well, hey, you don't even you don't even understand this, you know, you don't even understand what I'm talking about. Really, that scholars have always recognized too, that you've got two accounts of creation, and we've got one that gives it an overall view, and then we have another one that backs up and becomes more specific, all right? As we look at Genesis as a whole, one of the characteristics of the author of the material is that his first stab at anything is a general overall view, then he backs up and becomes very specific. And this will be true right on through the Bible, where the writer will give something and then back up and become very specific in that.
5: I think it's it's interesting that if, you, if you're talking to somebody that is a Christian and studying the Bible, there's a lot of questions that don't come up that come up when you start looking at, at people that are atheists or, or some, uh, grew up in a home that were not Christians. And um, because a lot of these things weren't explained or taken care of or, or studied and preached in the past or taught in the past, it looks like we, this this next generation of Christians, have a lot of cleaning up
0: work to do. Yeah. We've got to go back and, and, and I, start. The one I get disturbed at the most, Mark, really, is uh, the full-time preachers. I, I just really do, that uh, they are the ones that the, that are doing it full time, and they should be studying, they should, they should study the original languages. I'm not saying they have to be fluent in them or anything like that, but they need to be familiar with the Greek and the Hebrew. They need to study the history, the customs, and the whole thing. And they ought to have that, so at least when those questions come up, that they have the books and the sources and, and can deal with it. And then another thing in our study, most churches... That and most of the churches I've been affiliated with they, they have their teaching that goes from the minister on Wednesday night and, and on Sunday night and you only reach a certain level of, of uh, depth in those particular studies and yet when you go in the Bible and you, I'll just use the New Testament, it was true in the Old Testament those people that taught on the one hand like Jesus preached to the multitude then he took the, the, the 12 aside and the 70 aside and he was really teaching them in depth and, and then Paul, all, he preaches to the multitude. But then he's got Timothy and Titus and Demas and, and these individuals that he's obviously spending a lot of time with. Mm. And I think that uh, everybody does not have the same ability to study and to simulate information and to relate to it and all. And I believe that a minister in any congregation should be on the lookout for those people that honestly have the ability to grasp that and to understand it and to give it to others. And they ought to make sure they get it. Mm. And they ought to have classes for mature adults that are in church that are where you're going into it in a real in-depth way. And it's a shame that when you have churches and you'll find uh, members that are well-educated and intelligent and all, and yet they could be a member of that church for any number of years and never from that minister hear anything about the canon and how it's put together and these various things that we talk about when really it...